Hey, not past it listeners, get your dominoes ready. We're about to do the segment where we tell a series of little stories from history that are all connected, where one thing leads to another and another, and we end up in a totally unpredictable place. This is the historical domino effect. From Gimlet Media, this is Not Past It, a show about the stories we can't quite leave behind. I'm Simone Polanin. Most people probably know the Christmas story about the virgin birth of Jesus, the Son of God sent to save humanity from their sins. But on today's episode, we're focusing on Jesus's mom. There's just something about Mary and the story of the most famous virgin in history. Well, it's gonna get weirdly horny. The dominoes are all lined up. After the break, we're going to the chapel and we're gonna get married. That's like A1 throw to the break right there. Doesn't get better than that. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Eric Menel, hello, welcome. Simone Polanin, hello, <laughs> thank you. How are you, How are you doing? doing? Today? Oh, I invited fellow audio producer Eric Menel to join me for this week's episode. You might know him from his recent podcast, Stay Away from Matthew McGill. A lot of Eric's work is quite personal, and he speaks pretty openly about his relationship with religion, which is why I wanted to talk to him today. Um, you know, today on the day that we're taping this, where do you sort of stand in your relationship to the church? Um, glad you're starting with a softball. Uh, <laughs> yeah, just real easy. For the sake of giving it a word, I would describe myself as agnostic. I grew up going to church. I went to church through most of my 20s and then uh, sort of like late in my 20s, fell away from it and um, have have remained fallen, as some might describe it, <laughs> from within the church. What kind of church did you grow up going to? I grew up in a Lutheran church, which is a Protestant church, but it's like pretty Catholic. It's like Catholic without Mary is usually how I describe it. So like if you went to a Lutheran church service and a Catholic mass, the order of operations would be like pretty close to identical. There's just not like, there's no praying to Mary in the same way. Gotcha. But it sounds like you grew up going to Sunday school. You sort of have this knowledge of of the Bible. Like, is that, would you say that's all fair? Yeah. I, uh, Simone, yes, I am familiar with the Bible. Okay. Great, great. <laughs> I, I think Just like, wanted my, to make sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I know, I know like a little bit of stuff, but like, I'm not a scholar, you know? Cool. Well, I've got some fun things in store. So I'm excited to surprise you. I truly feel 
like I'm, I'm at a theme park. We've got a bunch of new rides and uh, you're going to test them all out for us. Okay, that's like kind of how I feel as like a ride tester today. So like, um, let's let's do it. We begin our journey in the early 5th century uh, with a man by the name of Augustine of Hippo. He is considered to be one of the sort of fathers of, of Western Christianity. I think, I hope I'm not getting my Augustines mixed up. I think he was like super horny, right? Uh-huh, yeah, yeah that's yeah, yeah. it. Okay, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know more than the basics, dude. I know probably more about like horny men from history than I do about the Bible, to be totally honest. But... <laughs> So Augustine lived in what is now modern-day Algeria. Um, and he was a bishop in the Catholic Church. Um, so he had, like, a decent amount of authority within the church. He was also a really well-known philosopher and writer in his time. Uh, and he happened to write a lot about sex, uh, as you noted. Horny man from history. So at this particular time in history, it's the tail end of the Roman Empire, and the Catholic Church is really rising in power. And sex is a big deal for the Catholic Church. The Catholics are really like, you know, sex is between a married couple, a man and a woman, for the purposes of procreation. Mm -hmm. And so Augustine, he starts to contextualize this Catholic theology into his own life and his own sexual experiences. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the most famous texts of his where he sort of deals with these topics of sex and sexuality um, is called Confessions. Uh, Augustine was in his Usher era. <laughs> so Confessions is about religion, but it's also, like, very autobiographical. He wrote pretty extensively about like how he struggled with lust for most of his life. And he even writes about, you know, having a lot of sexual exploits with a lot of men and a lot of women and having sex outside of marriage. And he writes about feeling really guilty about all of this um, to the point where, like, ultimately, he resolves himself to a life of total celibacy. I've read The Confessions. Um, it's like largely like noted as like the first time anyone wrote a memoir. I remember feeling really frustrated by that fact because like I love memoir as a form and the idea that the, the initial one is like an incredibly horny dude who's like, but look, you can change. Uh, you can <laughs> you can like get it all under control. Right. Yeah. Control is a huge part of it. It's like he sees this struggle to control these urges as evidence that sexuality must be bad, right? It's not godly. He ends up turning to what is probably the best-known story in the Bible, Adam and Eve. Um, And it's this investigation that leads to one of his biggest contributions, which is the concept of original sin. Um, This had been an idea that had been floating around But Augustine's really the one who coins it and really takes it to the next level. Now, is this this a concept that you're familiar with? My understanding of original sin is basically that from uh, the moment that Eve took a bite out of that apple, sin was cast over man for all eternity. So now the moment you're born, you are in fact like born into sin. You nailed it. That's exactly right. Eve took a bite out of the forbidden apple, 
She convinced Adam to do the same. And now humans are forever tainted with sin because they are descended from Adam. That's the gist of it. Mm -hmm. Augustine comes up with the idea that the way that this original sin is passed down from generation to generation is through Adam's sperm. Wait, literally? Literally. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, this sperm idea comes up um, in one of his writings called City of God from the early 400s. Um, And there's actually a term for this. It's called seminal headship. It's seminal headship is literally the word, though. Yes, that is, that is, yep, that is the phrase. It's like a little on the nose, right? (laughs) (laughs) It's It's the evil semen that has corrupted humanity. Okay, well. Basically, the idea is like, you know, at the dawn of time, we were all present within Adam as his sperm and therefore have inherited our sinful nature from him. I can't believe, wait, really? It's like, that's how it happens? It's like, it's like biological. That's surprising to me. But yeah, you know, but it seems like the explanation was kind of working for people at the time because this concept of original sin really takes off after Augustine writes about it. And as this concept is becoming more and more popular, people in the church start to be like, well, hold on, this actually, this presents a bit of a problem because if sin is passed down through sperm, then how do you explain all the people who are supposed to to be, you know, holy and pure and not have any sin at all. Mm -hmm. If you know about the big players in the Bible, you know about this guy named Jesus, (laughs) and you probably know that he is conceived of immaculately. My very basic understanding of how Jesus came into the world is that Mary saw an angel and then she was pregnant. People saw angels, Mary had a baby, but the important thing to note is that at no point between those two moments did Mary have sex, right? She was a virgin. So Jesus is in the clear, you know, he did not come from sex. Yes. Uh, He is not descended from Adam's sperm. Yes. He does not have original sin. He has not inherited sin. But now the question for the church becomes, well, what about Mary, right? Like, how can she be the mother of, you know, the Lord and Savior if she was also descended from Adam's sinful sperm? This takes us to Mary's immaculate conception. What the fuck? Domino number two. So after the concept of original sin, you know, gets popular and sort of widely accepted, the church turns to this Mary issue. They have this problem. Is she free of original sin or not? It's almost like they're debating whether or not Mary has the credentials to be the mother of Jesus. Like, is she pure enough if she has original sin? Like, was somebody challenging her for the job? Like, what's, like, why, like, what's the, what's to be gained here? I don't know if this is too reductive, but it is like, is this teen like, cool enough to be God's mom. That's how I imagine every headline. Yeah. Is this teen cool enough to be (laughs) God's mom? Right. Well, it turns out she is cool enough um, because there is this little-known story about Mary's conception. um, And, you know, the church kind of 
brings it out of the woodwork to deal with this question of Mary's original sin. So let me tell you about Mary's parents, who were named Anne and Joachim. So this the story isn't actually in the Bible, uh, but it's in the Gospel of James, which is not one of the canonical Gospels, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Right. So Anne and Joachim were living in modern-day Israel. Um, you know, they were a blessed couple in many ways. Joachim was a very wealthy man, but they didn't have any kids. They really wanted a child. They were trying to conceive one, but they were really struggling. It's like weighing very heavily on them. And at one point, Joachim just decides to leave. Mm. He actually escapes to the desert for 40 days and 40 nights to pray. Do you think Joachim, like, composed a folk album while he was out there? (laughs) Oh, man. I would sure not want to listen to it if he did. No offense. But we don't really know if he figured anything out, right? Well... Sort of. So an angel comes to him uh, while he's out in the desert. Oh. And the angel told him, you are going to have a child. God is going to give you a child. Right. He's like, great. He goes back to Israel and he finds his wife, Anne, is pregnant. And they're like, oh, wonderful. Like, God has graced us with a child. And eventually, Anne gives birth to Mary. One thing, one detail, though, that is never um, explicitly discussed in this story is at what point sex takes place, right? Nobody says there is no sex, but nobody says that there is. Hmm. So the church takes advantage of this ambiguity um, when it comes to Mary and, you know, her original sin— Because now they can point to this story and be like, see, Mary is free and clear. She was also immaculately conceived. So they adopt this old, little-known story from the Gospel of James about Mary's immaculate conception. There's an obvious follow-up here. Well, what you thinking, Eric? (laughs) What about Anne? It can't just be immaculate conception all the way down. Like, (laughs) Like, once you crack that seal, like... I know, I know, right? Interesting. I thought the obvious follow-up was going to be about, you know, how, like, when your husband leaves town for 40 days and 40 nights and you end up with a baby, I'm not so sure that an angel is the one who put it there. You know what I mean? Oh, gosh. I don't like where this is going, Simone. I'm like, what (laughs) what kind of dominoes game is this? It's a pretty spicy one, I gotta tell you. Okay, so by the Middle Ages, like sometime before the year 1000, um, this actually morphs into a holiday and people start celebrating the Feast of the Immaculate Conception, which is not about Jesus's Immaculate Conception, but about Mary's. And the way you celebrate it, you know, some of the ways you can sort of acknowledge the day is you can light a white candle, you can eat white foods, you can pray in honor of Mary's purity. Some people set out, you know, fresh white flowers like lilies or carnations. Dove soap and things like that. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You know, it's the sort of uh, observance of purity. Okay. We're going to hit pause on our little game of dominoes 
And when we come back, we're going to follow these ideas of purity as they travel the globe and land on American shores. We will be right back. And I pray you'll stay with us after the break. Welcome back, heavenly angels. Before the break, my guest Eric Menel and I knocked over the first two dominoes. We learned about noted horny man from history, Augustine of Hippo, who coined the term original sin. He popularized the idea that humans are all innately sinful because of our great, great, great granddaddy Adam. And he also believed that sin shows up in our lives through sexual urges. So... Thank you for that, I guess. Finally, we learned about Mary's Immaculate Conception, which freed her up from original sin and kept her pure. And these ideas were still bouncing around over the next few centuries as different offshoots of Christianity began to evolve. And then, in the 17th century, there's one offshoot that really takes this idea of purity and runs with it. So let's get back into it, shall we? Domino number three. The Puritans land on American shores. Wow. So one thing that's actually pretty interesting is that they didn't call themselves Puritans. It was actually a derogatory nickname given to them because they were largely seen as religious extremists in their time. Mm-hmm. They believed that many earthly pleasures were sinful, you know, things like sex, parties, um, but they were also like really anti like fancy church wear and ornate religious decorations. And this kind of made them outcasts in England at the time. So they left and came to what is present day North America. The Massachusetts Bay Colony. Yes, exactly. What they bring with them is a particularly, some might say, uptight relationship to uh, sexual behavior. And in these colonies, um, we see a lot of this, like, you know, literally puritanical culture. You're not supposed to dance with a member of the opposite sex because that might lead to lustful thoughts or behaviors. You're not supposed to play cards or play dice. Right. It's a real um, footloose situation. It really is. (laughs) The original footloose laws. The Puritans also have all of these laws around, you know, what kind of sex is or isn't okay. And these laws are known as sodomy laws. Basically, outlawing sex that they see as immoral or unnatural. (laughs) <laughs> which is basically all sex. I mean, like, it's like no oral sex, no anal sex, no masturbation, uh, pretty clearly like no sex between two men or two women. Basically, the Puritans like only approve of sex inside of a marriage for the purposes of having a child. Sex is like a means to an end. But like but... <laughs> even like if you had like lustful sex with your spouse, like yeah. that would be seen as bad. Yeah, no dirty talk, right? I guess the way I've always interpreted it was it was less about like sex specifically and more just about like a real sense of like self-control. Oh man, that's just like uh like part of the long history of people trying to make themselves feel more godly than someone else or yeah. like greater. 
Yeah, that that's an interesting this the notion of like self control is what sets you apart. I and I wonder if that's where so much of the guilt comes from because inevitably, you know, you're a person, your humanity is going to shine through, and like when you aren't able to control that, what is it that you start to you know understand about yourself or or you know your value as a person? Totally. I feel guilty all the time. <laughs> it's just oh, like, I'm sorry. No, I, you don't have to apologize. This is like, this is the other long tail of puritanicalism. It's just like how I walk through the world, feeling guilty <laughs> all the time. Yeah. Well, you know, the country is literally built on many of these puritanical ideas. It makes sense that it would bleed into your psyche. And so over time, these notions that are sort of brought over by the Puritans... Um, they stick around in the form of different social norms and values um, and even more laws. And this kind of goes on for like 200 years until we reach a sort of a tipping point. Domino number four. The sexual revolution. When I say the sexual revolution, what, what does that sort of bring to mind for you? I think... Uh sort of the like grainy jumpy image documentary thing i see is woodstock you know like that's the Mm -hmm. thing (laughs) there's the sort of rise of the glorious dynams of the world you know and like the rethinking Mm -hmm, of like mm -hmm. how we relate to sex as a culture and as individuals yeah totally but also like sex intense in a field Right. I think that was, yeah, my understanding of it, too, was like, oh, it's like naked hippies dancing in the mud. And and that's definitely a big part of it. Yeah. But there's obviously so much more, you know, than hippies. Some really big stuff happens in this time that still affects us today. In 1960, for example, the first birth control pill is approved by the FDA. And then generally, like, attitudes around relationships and sex are starting to loosen up. So like, you know, the idea of living together before marriage um, starts to become more acceptable. Yeah. We also start to see a lot of uh, laws changing around this time, especially ones pertaining to sex and sexuality, sort of the offspring of the Puritan laws, if you will. In the 60s, Illinois becomes the first state to get rid of its sodomy laws. And a lot of states sort of follow suit We also have the landmark Supreme Court decision of Roe v. Wade in 73, which outlaws total bans on abortions. The sexual revolution is like a cultural thing. It's also like a legal thing. It's a medical thing. You know, it's kind of springing up in all of these different parts of life, which is sort of, you know, unusual for a country that up to that point had been like pretty puritanical in its attitudes. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like a... The long pendulum of history swinging back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is like a hard swing back. Yeah. And so if the sexual revolution is a hard swing back from these puritanical values and conservative attitudes around sex, then we actually see the pendulum swing once again back to the other end. Yeah. And that takes us to our final domino. Domino number five. 
which is the rise of purity culture. Mm -hmm. So as soon as the sexual revolution starts, some people kind of respond to that with like, oh, great, like I'm on board. And some people respond to that with like, oh, no, this is ruining the country. And one group that falls into that latter category are conservative Christians. So in the 1970s, in the wake of this Roe v. Wade decision, you start to see conservative Christians around the country getting really activated politically. You see a lot of conservative Christians start to align themselves with political candidates um, and even sometimes becoming the political candidates. Which brings us to 2001, when noted conservative Christian George W. Bush takes office. And with his administration, we see a huge influx of federal funding into these what they call faith-based initiatives. And one of the sort of most notable initiatives being abstinence-only sex education. Wow. They're like very, very invested in this. We will double federal funding for abstinence programs so schools can teach this fact of life. Abstinence for young people is the only certain way to avoid sexually transmitted diseases. I remember very vividly like abstinence only education being like a big topic in the like late 90s, early 2000s. And mm-hmm. um, I also remember very vividly, like even at like age 10, feeling like the last thing you want to do to like keep me from trying to have sex as a teenager is to tell me I shouldn't have sex as a teenager. <laughs> just like, like it just like, it was like so obvious, even as a kid. Mm-hmm. I remember um, like seeing the abstinence only messaging around and like people would use these metaphors, be like, you know, you're a piece of gum. And every time you have sexual contact with somebody, it's like they're, chewing you up (laughs) by the time you get to the point where you want to marry someone who's going to want a chewed up piece of gum that's wild the messaging always was if you have sex you will get used up and you will be of no value that was like not how I imagined that metaphor working also that's what you're supposed to do with gum it's serving its function Yeah, Yeah. you're supposed to chew it up A lot of this stuff was also, like, appearing in the culture Um, and in pop culture specifically. There's this period of time where all these pop stars were coming forward and being like, I'm a virgin and I'm going to save myself for marriage. Wait, who were you thinking of specifically? Uh, Well, Britney Spears was a noted public-facing virgin, and she got asked about that constantly. I'm just wondering um, how you feel about all the constant speculation about your virginity and whether you are a virgin or not. You know, that's just something that's part of growing up and that's just something that we all have to deal with, so... Have there been any changes on that front? (laughs) (laughs) Jessica Simpson was another one of those people. She was a virgin. Right, right, right. I'm a hopeless romantic and there's that one thing that that I want to share with my husband. So this one company, they like sort of see this trend and they're like, we're going to cultivate all of these really wholesome young teen stars Mm -hmm. um, that are like parent friendly. Any guesses as to who these guys might be? Like, is their mascot a mouse? (laughs) Yes. Yep. Yep. Uh, Is it the wonderful world of Disney? (laughs) It sure is. It sure is. Yeah. Disney, ever the family friendly brand. Oh, I know. 
I mean, also the people who brought us Britney Spears to begin with. I mean, her iconic Mouseketeer era, let's not forget. Um, But in the early 2000s, they're in the midst of this big rebrand. That's like, you know, the height of like the Disney Channel original movie. Like, you know, they're they're doing really well in the sort of TV movie space. But they also have this um, music part of their business that's not doing too well. So they're like, you know what, we're we're actually going to take these this like new crop of teens. We're going to like give them shows and whatever. But we're also going to make sure that they record albums and make music and try to like gin up the music side of the business. Oh, no. Um, and they do incredibly well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This era brings us Miley Cyrus. I was waiting for you to say Miley Cyrus. I was like, oh, no. Selena Gomez. Demi Lovato, the Jonas Brothers. I mean... This is... Oh, okay, okay, continue. Wow. We're talking like peak mid-2000s Disney domination, right? But these teens aren't just appearing on Disney together. They have something else in common. Because they also all wear purity rings and they all talk about them publicly. That's wild. Like they were like all they were all wearing them. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Wow. Wow. Ugh. I had a like earth shattering crush on Joe Jonas. Mm-hmm. And like I was very um distraught about his purity ring situation because I was like, if we do meet, which I'm sure we will, and if he does fall in love with me, which I'm sure he will, what are we gonna do? You you just have to be patient. I guess you'd have to really, it'd be a real long game with Joe Jonas. What's interesting is that after Disney sort of invested all of this time and money creating this class of like perfect, pure, clean teen stars, they start to push back and the pendulum swings back again. My question for the Jonas Brothers is, did it feel so good taking off your purity ring? And did it feel so good taking off your purity ring? You know what I'm saying? I think Miley Cyrus is an interesting example. Yeah. Because she probably had the most public break from this, like, innocent teen image. Totally, totally. You know, she had her can't be tamed era. She cut her hair and dyed it blonde and twerked and, you know, everyone freaked out about that. I mean, (laughs) you know, she's taken these very deliberate steps. Yeah to sort of be shocking um, in this way. She's a really good, famous person. Mm -hmm. She's one of those people who's navigated that, like, kind of incredibly, at least publicly. Something that's interesting about her is, like, she's not just being open about her sexuality and her music. I think she's also pretty open about the sort of reality of that in her personal life. You know, she's talked openly about being queer. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's not, like, perfect, but it feels like we're moving towards more and more openness Mm -hmm. and authenticity in a way that it felt like there just was not space for that, even just 10 years ago. I feel like we've reached the singularity. Like we started with the sense that like culture needs to repress sexuality and like this back and forth pendulum of time, the Catholic church to the Puritans, to like purity laws in the United States. And then it gets us to the Disney Channel where they try to create wholesome stars. But then what you wind up with is like 
the horniest stars on the planet between like Miley Cyrus and like Nick Jonas. Like they're really hot. That seems like such a like backfiring of like whatever Augustine was going for. Holy cow. Wow. It's all coming together. No, I love it. I love it. (laughs) It's interesting to to think about Augustine and Miley Cyrus as like diametric opposites in some way. (laughs) Who knows what the world looks like in um, 400 years. But I I do wonder like uh, which of those texts, um, those texts being the Confessions and then Hannah Montana will be have been more influential (laughs) (laughs) on uh, on American society. It's a toss up. Who knows? Whoa, I did not see this going where where it went. Wow, what a tricky little domino set. Great, that's that's what we try to do over here, you know? Well, thank you so much for joining us, Eric. It's been a pleasure, and you're welcome back anytime. It was a blast. Thank you. Thank you. Not Past It is a Spotify original produced by Gimlet and ZSP Media. This episode was produced by Laura Newcomb. Next week, we're revisiting the Beanie Babies. All of a sudden, other beanies were starting to surface. There's dinosaurs. There's a snake. There's a panda, Peking a panda. There's a, a chili, the polar bear. The rest of our team are producers Amy Padula and Sarah Craig. Our associate producers are Julie Carley and Ramoy Phillip. The supervising producer is Erica Morrison. Editing by Moral Waltz, Andrea B. Scott, and Zach Stewart-Pontier. Fact-checking by Jane Ackerman. Sound design and mixing by Hansdale Shee. Original music by Sax Kicks Ave, Willie Green, Jay Bless, and Bobby Lord. Our theme song is Toko Liana by Coco Co. With music supervision by Liz Fulton, technical direction by Zach Schmidt, show art by Elise Harvin and Talia Rockman. The executive producer at ZSP Media is Zach Stewart-Pontier. The executive producer from Gimlet is Abby Ruzica. Special thanks to Jake Maya Arlo, Lydia Polgreen, Dan Behar and Clara Sankey, Emily Wiedemann, Liz Stiles, and Nabil Cholampat. And hey, if you're looking for a new show, check out Dysfunctional Family Storytime from Gimlet. Each episode features a story about strange families, estranged families, deranged families. So just like families? It's hosted by the incredible Jorge Just. Go find it on Spotify. Follow Not Past It Now to listen for free exclusively on Spotify. Click the little bell next to the follow button to get notifications for new episodes. You can follow me on Twitter at Simone Polanin. Thanks for hanging. We'll see you next week. I would not be who I am without Brink. <laughs> oh my gosh, Brink. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, gotta kick it up. Yeah, here we go. <laughs> Anyways, I'm not gonna list every Disney Channel movie I've ever seen. <laughs>